For me, it felt like being dropped in the open ocean and having to be like, this is fine. And for Alexa, it felt like watching a baby seal get eaten. It, by it a felt like David Attenborough was grabbing me by the throat. Oh my God. <laughs> I want David Attenborough to narrate Mushishi so bad. Ah! So bad. King, please. Oh my God. I'd scream and cry and throw the, up. The, the, that's the only real senpai. When ah! I say senpai notice me, I mean David Attenborough. One, two, three, four. Welcome to the Shonen Protagonist, the podcast that puts a little more Ganbaru into your life. Welcome! I'm Tavarita. And I'm Atomic. And today we are going to be discussing the sleeper hit manga and anime series Mushishi and the power or lack thereof that humanity has in the face of entropy. Today's episode is called A Single Thing in Nature, Mushishi and the futility of it all. That's right, it's gonna get deep, it's gonna get existential, and if you haven't seen Mushishi, we encourage you to watch it as soon as possible because it will change your life. Whether it inspires you or fucks you up forever, only time will tell. This episode title comes from a quote by famous American conservationist John Moore. Muir? I don't know. Muir. Muir. M-U-I-R. Anyway, when one tugs at a single thing in nature, he finds it attached to the rest of the world is the quote. We thought it was very fitting according to the themes of this episode. And before we get started, yes, uh, you will notice that this is not the Mob Psycho episode we promised. Um, basically, we're doing our best to keep up with our work schedules. We're trying um, very, very hard, and you should be very proud of us. Yes, I'm proud of you. <gasps> and... <laughs> oh, she's really stressed, Gus. <laughs> she's really stressed. <laughs> basically okay basically the mob episode is over four hours of recorded material um and hopefully someday we can pay someone to edit our episodes for us but in the meantime we are just going to do our best to keep up with our podcast schedule um i think we both severely underestimated the amount of work that each episode would be i mean i knew that it was going to be a lot of work but it's a learning experience even more work even more work um but anyway um, I knew uh, that editing would take a while, is what I mean, but the research and the writing also takes me a lot of time. Um, we want to make it good for you. Yes. It also kind of just evolved naturally into kind of like writing an essay. It, like, my process has turned into naturally writing an essay because that's just who I am. That's who I am, and I need to accept it. So, anyway... Uh, I know we don't owe anyone any apologies, and quite frankly, if you feel entitled to what I put out, go away. I don't like you. Um, but oh, anyway. I guess I'll leave. Bye. Rude ass. <laughs> Rude ass. Anyway, we hope to get the mob episode up soon. Um, it's whatever. We're doing our best. It's really good content, so you should be looking forward to it as much as I we know. are looking forward to putting it out. I know. Soon we're going to have uh, sponsored ads. Oh my god, dies. This episode brought to you by Audible. What do you think? How does that sound? It sounds audible. Fuck you. <laughs> Alright, so anyway, that being said, uh, Ryan, BuzzFeed, Supernatural Voice. That being said. That being said. Let's get started talking about the media at hand. 
And the murders were terrible. (laughs) The grisly murders. The grisly murders of of this podcast. By the Mushi will remain. Okay, we're going to get fucking sued if we keep. Anyway, um, we're talking about Mushishi. (laughs) So, uh, first of all, um, also just feel free to jump in here because um, we're doing this one fucking raw. Uh, um, oh, well, first thing is Mushishi fucked up if true. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yes, yeah. Shadow Biosphere fucked up if true. <laughs> um, but first of all, before we really crack in, God, I keep ripping off the Unsolved Boys. We've been um, watching a lot of Unsolved. We've been watching a lot of Unsolved. We've been watching a lot of Watcher. Um, but anyway. Uh, first of all, I want to thank the women writers and the shonen and seinen genres more than anything for creating literally just some of the best out there. Bangers. Um, of course, um, that means that the writer of Mushishi is in fact a woman. And it is written by, um, I hope that you guys all know that while we record these, Alexa does cookie run in the background. Hey! And you were supposed <laughs> to tell me, but... <laughs> but it's very good. And, you were uh, supposed to tell me. It's funny. It's funny. They deserve to know, like, what it looks they like. They deserve to know that I'm unmedicated? Is that what they deserve to know? <laughs> You're working so hard. It, she I, has to multitask. I'm trying to tether myself yeah. to this reality. I know. The I best know. I can. I know. And Cookie Run is, is your last tether. That and Kumo being so cute. Kumo's you can't being see very him, cute. But he does. Yeah, he's sitting um on my laptop case. He's like, this is mine now. Thank you for buying yes, me a bed. Yes, it's his bed now. Anyway, before we get really... um, Anyway... Mushishi, yes, that's what we're talking about. Not Cookie Run. <laughs> a seinen written by Yuki Urushibara, who also goes by uh, Soyogoshima. Quite frankly, I don't know what is under um, like her pen name versus her actual name. If I believe, if I believe I'm correct, uh, Soyoko was the pen name that she started with. So, yeah, I guess, but, like, when you Google one versus the other, all the same shit comes up. Yeah. So, it, I guess um, that's just, like, a fun fact at this point, but they really aren't differentiated from each other. No. As, like, you know, like, if you Google Lady Gaga, different shit's gonna come up, and if you Google Stephanie Germanata. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, um, there really is no difference with this, uh, with this lady. I will admit I didn't do a super deep dive in researching all of this, but so yes, all of the same stuff came up. Maybe more would have come up if I no, I I dug no, I dug around to to lead into that like like organically when I dug around and just off my own knowledge, there is not a lot about her online in general. Yeah, she is very very private and cryptic, even with like mangaka in general who are. Tend, tend to be very private and quiet. Yes. There are, are almost no pictures of her. There's almost no, like, uh, biographical information, uh, like, fun facts. I mean, there, there are there's really... Some. There's There's bits and bops, but not a lot. Yes. I mean, so. what's funny is that, like, literally she... Uh, the biggest thing I was able to find online is people asking, hey, is there any interviews with this lady? There's none. Exactly. Like, um, yeah. Yeah, apparently we just have a gift for loving the work of cryptic 
manga cause. Uh-huh. So what we know, um, she was born January 23rd, 1974 uh-huh, uh-huh. in the Yamaguchi Prefecture of Japan. So we know she's an Aquarius and uh, Alexa found out she hates cockroaches. Which is understandable because they are gross. I really don't mind them that much. Um, except when they're in my Animal Crossing house. Everyone is masked until the cockroach starts flying. That's all I have to say. Yes, you're right. <laughs> uh, pretty much uh, all the rest that we know about her is basically what we've derived from her work. She likes writing short stories, and we know that because she writes short stories. She writes a lot of them. That's the, that's what she does. I dug around for interviews. That's, that's usually the best place to get information. Couldn't find any dug around subreddits. Can't find anything. Her listings on Anime List, Goodreads, Wikipedia are all very scant. I don't even know if she's married with kids, where she currently lives, or what, if anything, she's currently working on. And quite frankly, that is a level of anonymity that I'm inspired by in this day and age. Yeah, honestly, just do your shit and freaking... Um, I have no idea how she's actually managed to keep this much of herself off the internet, to be honest. Well, her seminal work ended up being, like, before, like, big internet started to hit. Because Mushishi was coming out in English. I remember back in, like, 2007 or 8. Yeah. So, like, that that hit. I mean, obviously, we had the anime and everything like that. But that's, like, two different, like, uh, fan bases. And, I mean, she's published things afterward. But, like, like her big, her big fame uh, thing hit before, like, people started to be super interested in, like, being online. Yeah. Plus, I mean, I don't know if it's me, but she doesn't seem like the type of person who would maintain an author Twitter account. Um, no, but she, I believe she does have one. Um, it seems like it's maintained for her. Yeah. It, it doesn't um, look, it doesn't look, uh, quote unquote personalized. Yeah. That it, makes sense. it doesn't, but, um, she does have one. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, yeah, and I, plus I can't read Japanese, so I I just was like, well, that sure is a Twitter. That that's the most Twitter I've ever seen. That's the most Twitter it is. That's the most Twitter I've ever seen. So, um, it's really honestly inspiring. I love that. I hope she's living her best life. There's very few pictures of her, as Alexa was saying, mm-hmm. and honestly, I wonder if she's even seen them. Um, she seems very disconnected from the world of manga. And if I were to guess what she were up to right now, I would guess that she is transcending into another dimension or achieving enlightenment. Or maybe Um, on a nature hike. Yes, um, with her third eye opening, because the nature of her work just makes me think that, like, this person is woke as fuck. You know what I mean? Literally predicting things before her time and being an incredible uh, altar of the arts and... The human emotion. Yeah, just a fucking juggernaut of make you feel. So it seems uh, that Oshibara has an affinity for episodic stories um, based off of the fact that basically her entire body of work is short stories. In fact, Mushishi is the longest running thing that she has ever uh, had published, at least. It shows in the fact that she also has the short story format perfected, I would say. May Mm -hmm. I be so bold down Mm -hmm. to a formulaic science that reflects in how strong each of her short stories are on their own. So um, in 1997, she released a compilation of short stories. Um, What that one was called. Uh, It was either bio. I think it it might have been bioluminescence. Yes. Uh, 
which was later included in another short story compilation released in 2004 called Filament. Mm-hmm. And um, I wrote in my notes that Filament includes um, the original story for Mishishi, but I think that actually bioluminescence also had it yes filament so, is just a bigger compilation of of everything that was in more, bioluminescence but and then more just adding more as she came out with them yeah so uh mushishi was floating around in her noggin for a while and honestly uh that makes sense to me because if she was just making stories like that off of the cuff i would have to just bow to her uh brilliance Mm-hmm. in that because holy shit every episode is just so perfect but uh anyway i also found that there isn't an official publisher uh for filament or bioluminescence you have to find them in the way that you find a lot of stuff online by accident wink wink nudge <laughs> nudge yes <laughs> he's sleeping kubo's just being very cute um, oh he do a big oh yawn. he on Kumo, say hi. That was me, not him. He just look at you. He's just looking. Oh, He's my brain buddy. turns into oatmeal when I look at this cat. He looks like oatmeal. <laughs> are you a big dumb boy? Now, now people are gonna be like they bully their cat. I bully the shit out of Kumo. Call the SPCA because I bully him so much. <laughs> okay. Anyway, before my brain does turn. Uh, in 1999, so yes, in the timeline here, where mm-hmm. the the year is 1999. The turn of the new century. And Mushishi was first published in Afternoon Season Zokan and Monthly Afternoon. Um, two different things eventually became one, I think. Correct. Um, yes. So it is by far, as we said, her longest running series. It spanned nine years. So it ran from 99 until 2008. And at 10 volumes long, it's over three times longer than her other published manga series. It also won a couple of well-deserved awards, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. including the 2003 Excellence Prize for Manga at the Japan Media Arts Festival, which is quite a big festival, and the 2006 Kodansha Manga Award for, you guessed it, manga. Yay. Yes. And Orushibara would later go on to have two other series, Suiki or Waters and Nikoganishi Mukya or Cats Are Facing West. Did I say that right? Neko. Neko wait, hold on. Where is it? Nekoganishi Mukya. Yeah, Neko Nekoganishi Mukya. Yeah. Cats yeah, are facing west. Cats are facing west. But anyway, those were both published in monthly afternoon. And they both ran for less than two years. Uh Cats Are Facing West was last published in twenty twenty. So recently and i'm interested to see what orushibara comes up with next and after experiencing mushishi i'm very interested to read more of her uh like plot based stuff i mean i don't even know if either of these are episodic format or if they are story cats format. are facing west i read a i read the first chapter of and i haven't because i got distracted and ended up reading stop <laughs> and ended up playing cookie run no i i got distracted <laughs> and i ended up going backwards and reading stuff from bioluminescence and film uh, because i was like no i should start from the beginning that's so funny yes um okay so yeah anything um else that uh has been published under her name 
is just Mushishi Extras um, or specials. And while her career is comparatively small, uh, in the shadow of the other, like, heavy hitters that we've talked about on this show, basically. Um, more prolific, I yeah. would say. More prolific, but also just um, more well-known, at least in the Western uh, hemisphere yeah. of fandom. Yeah, I mean, if you ask if you ask the general anime layperson what Mushishi is, they might not be able to tell you. Yeah, I mean, like, I think that older people, like, older people like us um, that have been into anime for a while probably remember Mushishi, mm-hmm. um, but that's about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what stands out about Urushibara's work is her consistent quality of story, mm-hmm. her dreamy, wistful, romantic art style, and when I say romantic, I don't mean like Goo Goo Gaga, I mean like, <laughs> you, you know, like not like Romeo and Juliet kind of interpersonal romance, I mean um, like romantic uh, in a literary way, um, an emphasis on nature, um and you know all that good her stuff. Her excellent watercolor work is also uh beautiful. It's sexy. It it's just plain sexy. I wish the but art like, book wasn't five hundred dollars. Don't remind me. It's sexy to my heart. Yes. And I think that's what real romanticism is. Yes. Anyway, um, <laughs> before I get heart horny, I'm going to kill. Um, <laughs> I'm already regular horny. This is uh, just fine. Play Cookie Run. And <laughs> uh, so, honestly, um, her work is just a cut above it, it, almost no matter who you're comparing it to. And her compelling and existential stories just pack so much into one chapter while, um, like, you know, not saying, you know, that this is necessarily all the same. Because in the end, I feel like comparing her work to the other people, especially that we have talked about on the show, is apples and oranges. Yeah, Hunter but Hunter and this is completely, completely different. utterly. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in like a general comparison. Yeah. Um, she has managed to pack in so much emotion in such a short amount of time. And you feel uh, very deeply for characters that you meet in very short amounts of time versus like, God, I hope this Gone character gets more interesting. <laughs> yeah. Like, like they'll introduce a character for literally one chapter. And by and the end like, of wow. like 20 to 30 pages, you're like, I am crying so hard. I would die for them. Yeah. Yes. It's, it's truly amazing. And I feel like few people, um, in, that, that not only are just in the manga, but few storytellers can say that they have met that standard so consistently mm. as she has. So it, she has a gift. I will say that. So, uh, do you have anything to add yet? Or are we just going to kind of go in? Well, um, the thing that I have to add first is that I want to flex super hard and say that I have uh, copies of the original Mushishi manga. Yes. Which is... I borrowed them to read for this episode. Yes, which is incredibly hard to find. So, I'm going to flex so hard. And if you try to rob me, I'll kill us both. Anyway. (laughs) That's so dramatic. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> joked on my water. No, because like literally, um, I want to talk about publishing for a little bit um, because I think it ties into this relatively well. Um, 
I want to talk about publishing because um, while it's just kind of a, a side note for this episode, I Mushishi is probably the biggest example of uh, a series that is literally impossible to find in print these days. Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, okay. Um, and because of that, uh, when, when people always say, hey, you know, support your creator and go find it and go buy it and everything like that, you can't with this series. I mean, unless you want to spend like hundreds of dollars. You can't. And because of that, if you ever like a series when it's coming out, try your best to be able to get your hands on it because you never know when you won't be able to anymore. Um, Mushishi is obviously a lot older, but I've been seeing this with newer series. Uh, for instance, I've been trying to uh, track down Kekai Sensen, which is not an old series. It's by Dark Horse, which is a company that still exists and is prolific and publishes shit to this day. And Kekai Sensen, it, the individual mangas are go going up to $20, $30, $40 each. So it is pulling a Mushishi. And it's like, fuck, Why? shit. Um, obviously, digital stuff is uh, much easier to pass around and find. Um, but there, there are things that, unless we archive them um, or, you know, you put your neck out and try to find real physical copies, you literally just might not be able to yeah, when you want them. That is a very good point. And I think um, that it's something that we kind of forget about in this digital age where, like... Nothing beats the real thing. Uh, I mean, um, I'm not. I'm not a. I'm not like a book purist who's like I can't. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> but if you want, but if it means a lot to you and you want to have it, whenever you want to access it, then owning it is just the best way to. Like, I'm not saying a physical copy is better than a digital copy, but you physically are holding it in your hands. A digital and copy aspect, can always be taken from you. Yeah. No, well, well not but, you always, know, but you know but what I mean? Like, there's something that could happen that you could lose it. Or, um, like, I mean, you can't with a physical copy. But, no, you know, no, like, but if like it's how, on your bookshelf, you know, you can, you know, you don't need anything to access it. Yeah. It's there. It's always there. And that's really nice. We know with video games and we know with digital uh, archival services that nothing is forever. Yeah. And by nothing is forever, sometimes it only lasts a couple of years and then you literally can't get it anymore. Yeah. So, so, so that's, I agree. Um, that's I think a huge that, thing to talk about. I mean, people still um, are avid collectors. I mean, I am halfway through collecting the uh, second publication of the FMA manga in English. So... I mean, I think that it's really awesome to collect the stuff that, you know, you personally uh, find important. Just but. don't just don't get that. Like, like, uh, I don't know how to talk. You know, how like FOMO, which is like fear of missing out. This is like post FOMO where you definitely missed out you and now you're kicking yourself out. and you're like, fuck shit. If yeah. I had if I had not got this manga when I did and now and like was looking it up now, I would be so mad. I'm mad about yeah. Kekai Sensen. And like it's not even old, and it's not even old. Yeah. Well, that's a very good point. Uh, I definitely agree with that. And um, I, I mean, who's to say that? You, like the thing is, is that you never know. Um, like God, you know, someday. I don't want to make that comparison. I was gonna say my hero, but I feel like those are always gonna be pretty. There's, there's anyway. More, there's more we're copies of them. Going but, off track. But, but, but yeah, if you if you like a series, especially a series that you see no one talking about and no one really like like sharing around and everything like that, and you be and you be like, yeah, I would like copies of those someday. Go and get them. Yeah. Don't don't kick yourself later because now, like for instance, it's impossible to find volumes of Berserk. So like, <laughs> yeah, true. 
Ugh, now I'm sad. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that's a very good point. Mm-hmm. So, um, anyway, going back to Mushishi, um, for those of you who haven't watched it, at least, um, it can be described as many things. But what we can all agree upon is that it was a bona fide sleeper hit. Mm-hmm. While it may not have been a cultural phenomenon or a genre staple, Everyone who has watched or read it agrees that it's fucking incredible. There is no division of viewership. Everyone is like, this is good. This is one of my favorites ever. This This is is going in the vault. Yes. So Mishishi is set in a world, according to Urushibara, in... I don't... Um, no, it wasn't in an interview. It was um, in, like, one of the manga folds. Yeah, like, it was, it like, was a like, a factoid. little bonus note. Um, so that's how we know this. But um, according to her, it takes place in the time between the Edo and Meiji period. Is mm-hmm. it Meiji or Meiji? Meiji. Meiji periods. While Japan was still a closed country. And do you want to explain what a closed country is, Alexa? <sighs> yeah, I will go. fact machine? I, you... You have to pay me for this. Anyway, no. I so won't. it to to I mean if you've watched the history of Japan, you remember the meme open the country, stop having it be closed. Stop I'm sure. Having it be closed. Yeah. Uh so for a long time Japan was not accepting any like outside trade with exception oh, to one port sneeze. and only the Dutch. But that's like a side thing. But basically between the Edo and Meiji eras, uh, the Meiji era is where a lot of uh, media gets written in because it's quote unquote the cool era of Japan to where they were having things like trains and like technological advancement crazy fast, but also still had things like samurai. Like the it was basically the dying age of the samurai, which makes it very, very cool. But this, this series is set before this time period of like massive upset and like like a cultural exchange so it's a very um it it feels very like so you're saying that the technology that is shown the architecture the world is all exclusively japanese without the influence of other cultures yeah extremely heavily like old old style japanese yes um i don't want to say feudal because it's later than that it's later than feudal Um, but they do have firearms if i recall they do have firearms but they are rare and they are like winchester level rifles where like reloading it takes forever yeah so um okay good explanation Mm -hmm. yes thank you you're welcome yes so this world um is occupied with ubiquitous creatures that are called mushi which loosely translates to bug uh hence the title um mushi she Mm -hmm. um it it basically means it basically means like the the mushi master or or the bug guy but <laughs> very yeah, colloquially the the, blood. the mushi handler the mushi said, handler uh yeah like the mu- the mushi guy bug man yeah a uh, mushi can also translate to like creature as well or like like so it's a pretty broad term it's a very broad term um, so it loosely translates to bug but to kind of give you an idea of what the mushi are that's just um, it seems like a kind of a broad term that ultimately traces back to bug is pretty accurate. Mm-hmm. So um, it loosely translates to bug and they coexist with and sometimes cross paths with humans. 
And in this world, Mushi exist as the most primitive life form on Earth, predating dinosaurs, animals, fungi, bacteria. As the main character, uh, Ginkgo, describes, they are the life form that is closest to the figurative heart of the universe. And Ginkgo is a Mushishi, or Mushi master, handler, guy, someone who helps humans whose lives have been impacted by these Mushi. And Mushishi possess uh, the rare ability to actually see the Mushi, because you see, most humans can't. Or only under very specific conditions. Yes, that's true. Um, Ginkgo prefers, or bleh, Ginko differs uh, from his fellow Mushishi in his refusal to kill the Mushi. Um, he's like, he's basically the Batman of the Mushi. Yeah, he, he, <laughs> but, but not in a stupid way. No, not, no. The, not in the Batman he way. Will, he will make the call eventually, but what he strives for is balance overall. But if he yes. realizes that people are going to die for this, he will make the call to be like, okay, all right, I tried everything else. I have to do it like this. Okay, fine. Yeah, but I think that, like, if it had to be between a Mushi and a human, but the human was the one causing the imbalance, like, Ginkgo would prefer to kill the human. Yes. Which is... If a human goes and fucks with the shit, and the shit fucks back, well, that's the human's fault. I, isn't, the, isn't there an episode like that? There is many episodes like that. Yeah. That, is, that is an overarching I'm theme. trying to think of, a, like, a specific one. The episode with the flowers in the island. Yeah. Okay. There you go. Those who inhale the doom. Yep. Um, which is which is some some pure. They were just in a cave honestly, minding their own business. No, seriously. Like seriously, fuck those people. Anyway, um, so Ginko is different than his peers in that he possesses this impartiality towards uh, humans versus Mushi, Mushi versus humans, um, where he knows that um, they like everyone else in this world, are just simply trying to survive. The Mushi haven't done anything wrong is basically his whole manifesto. Mm-hmm. Um, so unlike other Mushishi, also Ginko attracts Mushi to him wherever he goes. Which, uh, like like a super lot. Yes. Um, that's also why he smokes, if you notice, uh, in all of the artwork, he always has a cigarette. And he says that, well, it's, it's like a clove cigarette. I it's guess. literally um, incense that he's smoking. He smokes incense? That's what it is. It's like, oh, it's repellent. That's what, she, that's what she says in the, um, but yeah, he's basically, it's a repellent. Um, and even then, if he stays around a place too long, he will start attracting uh, everything to him like flies. So that's why so, he keeps moving. Yes, that's why he lives the nomadic lifestyle that he has. And that's why we have the episodic format that the show is in. It's basically following the adventures of Ginko or is in a place where Ginko shows up eventually. So we follow Ginko on his adventures across a Japanese landscape that is long gone, working with humans and Mushi alike to encourage a peaceful coexistence among a cruel and unbiased natural world. So what do people say about it? Well, I'll tell you. I am the best at segues. <laughs> so Carl uh, Kimlinger, a writer for Anime News Network, writes on Mushishi, its hypnotic rhythm, humanism, and naturalist eye for beauty give it a charm that far outstrips mere entertainment value. I love that. 
He elected Mishishi as the best anime series of 2007, by the way. Critic Jason Thompson wrote that Mushishi was a very original vision with a sort of flowing life of its own, a biologist precision mixed with creepy fairy tales and a surreal dreamy feel. Both of those great descriptions. These are only two among a plethora of reviews by people who were just absolutely enraptured by the strange, spooky, beautiful, scientific, fantastic world of Mushishi. And I have to give props uh, to the people that are person, people who edited the Mushishi Wikipedia page because they did an awesome job finding quotes from reviews that gave me emotions just reading them. So, you know, Wikipedia is a good resource. Oh, <laughs> don't it let, truly Don't is. let people tell you different. No, it truly is. Um, you, you just have to look in the footnotes, kids. That's that's where the juice is. That's 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 yes. the that's the hot tip. That's the that's yes. the uh, that's the strat. Yeah, take it from take it from me. Uh, the certified anime researcher, uh, me. Yes. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> they did. Those people did a really good job. Um, thank you. So yes, thank you. It truly seems you can't watch or read Mushishi without feeling something stir deep within your heart and soul. In addition to its numerous awards and positive critical reception, it's mere ten volumes have sold over 3.8 million copies worldwide. And I think that's pretty impressive for a 10-volume series. That's not bad at all. Yeah. Um, when you take into account, I mean, obviously, like, One Piece having 100 is, like, the most extreme comparison ever. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's it's the average for a running manga series is not that long. So, or is not, is much longer than Mushishi, which is not that long, is what I'm saying. We're recording this at like one in the morning. <laughs> so I'm, I'm wide tired. awake. I don't know about you. I'm, I'm not. I'm gonna do cartwheels around this apartment I'm right now. Fucking tired. Anyway. <laughs> um so uh, this is probably where Alexa is gonna take more over, but uh moving on into the anime itself. Uh the anime employed some of the best in the business with another very cryptic presence in the anime community Hiroshi Nagahama as the director who has a known affinity for western comics um and I literally wrote in my notes blah 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 Alexa take it away so (laughs) blah 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 Alexa take it away okay to track back to the manga for like one more second because I just had a note that I didn't actually write down in my notes but um uh, While so, you talk about it, I'm gonna go get a glass of water. Wow. Okay. Oh no, no, I'm still listening. Yeah, oh I know God. you're still listening. I, now I'm distracted. I'm gonna distract you. What? All right. So, um, to take it away, as Tanya would say, um, back in the manga, uh, it's very obvious that uh, Yuki has a uh great love for the natural world. Uh, not only from an illustrative purpose, but uh, also a scientific, uh, level. Um, the things that she employs and how she draws and records a lot of her like world building and how the mushi even look remind me heavily about of various fungal species, which makes sense because fungi are kind of where you get to that weird cross of plant rods. and animal. I love rods so much, but oh, we're going to get to rods in a second. Um, but they remind me of fungi, which is like, you know, the weird cross between plant and animal. And since they're like more... Uh, simplistic than fungi it makes sense um uh also uh it really looks like she took a lot of inspiration from famous cryptids like rods if you want to look them up they are an incredible 
cryptid species that should get noticed more. I think a lot of anime fans will recognize them from showing up in JoJo of all places, but... Of course! This is a fucking JoJo reference. Literally, it's a fucking JoJo reference. But um, because... because There's of, also an episode of Monster Hunter that is about rods. I fucking love rods. A fucking joy. Rods are my yes. favorite cryptid, I think. Okay, anyway. So, except for the Jersey Devil, but I gotta rip my Jersey cred. Yeah. Um, so... Pine Barrett! Woo! <laughs> Greatest, <laughs> greatest forest in the world. It really isn't. It no, really it's isn't. the worst forest. It smells like cigarettes. <laughs> the, and the Jersey Devil's in there. <laughs> and the Jersey Devil's in there. Anyway. Anyway, so um, with her attention to detail and her attention to world building, you really see someone who has grown up uh, loving and studying the natural world from a scientific perspective as well. All the things that Mushi do, are uh, a lot of them are based with of real-life creatures and animals. Um, even her uh, uh, one anthology called Bioluminescence kind of le- lends uh, uh, a lampshading to the fact that she is focused really on um, building a a world that makes sense, even if it's magical, which Mushishi is. Things make in th- th- things have a consistency and a coherency to them, even though they are basically fairy tales. Well, I think that that's kind of like what makes life magical, right? Is that that's not too far of a stretch. Exactly. There's there's many uh, uh, Mushishi, there's many stories in Mushishi that reference famous fairy tales or at least make notion of them. There are... Uh, it actually reminds me, uh, oddly enough, of a another another very famous illustrator, Miss um, Potter, who did the uh, Peter Rabbit uh, books. Oh yeah! Because she started out as a natural botanist and a scientist. Wow, just like my OC. Didn't make it in that field because girl no do science back then. So then instead, illustrated children's books. Uh, girl draw rabbit now. Girl draw rabbit now. But all her drawings were done with the eye of someone who had originally had gotten into botany draftsmanship. That's really cool. Isn't that really cool? Yeah. Um, so there's that going on too. But I, I just wanted to do that aside because I think it's really special and important when world building makes sense to where it resonates with you with, oh, yeah, you know, I could see that happening. Or, oh, I heard about this story one time. Or I get that, why, why that's an old wives' tale. A lot of the yeah. Mushi are based on wives' tales of some sort, which Crazy. is also another really fun thing. Yeah. So, um, um, so into the, the anime. anime. Yes. yes. So into the anime. Pushing 40 minutes. Oh, my God. So pushing into the anime, um, I just have a couple of notes because uh, it was... Uh, so Yeah, so tell me about um, just like the basic stuff, when it came out, mm-hmm. how it did. So basically, uh, it came out in 2007 uh, and then also had a second season seven years later in 2014. Uh, which is a relatively large gap between two seasons, as we all know. Usually there's a couple of years between seasons as uh, production takes a long time. But uh, the second season and then subsequent uh, OVAs were all done in one in one shot in 2014 and 2015. Uh, it, it ended up finishing up the manga for the most part and then also uh, animating uh, a secondary side story that uh, uh, Yuki published later on uh, as an OVA. Uh, Artland, who, who is the studio, um, was a great pick for this uh, because they were headed up um, in part by Yoshihiko Umakoshi. Umakoshi 
is a character, well, not a character, but like a, a, a person of character in the animation production like world. Like a card. Yeah. He, he's he, a real card. Yeah. He's a, he is yes. a person of interest in the animation world because pretty much everything that he works on is like, if you're in the know about him, you're in the know. Um, he, the most, one of the most recent and prolific things that he worked on were, was he carried season one of My Hero Academia on his back. The reason that My Hero Academia Season 1, which is not as well animated as the rest because it was still uh, in its infancy. It was a fledgling fledgling, uh, uh, production. I remember watching this and being like, this isn't going to take off. Literally, yeah. They they did not. they, They were scared. And the only reason it looked as good as it did was because he did a ton of the key animation and a ton of the directing on it. Wow. Thanks to him then. Literally. I mean, it wasn't until Season 2 that. Where things uh, took off. That it took off in the States. For exactly, sure. exactly. Yeah. Um, so Umakoshi has also worked on uh, Cash Earned Sins, the best uh, season of Precure, Heart Catch Precure, and uh, uh, a couple of other play- a couple of other anime here and there. Um, he uh, first was on uh, Magical Doremi, which was basically supposed to be the Sailor Moon Killer of Magical Girl anime, and is also incredibly uh, excellent. And on Doremi, he made friends uh, with Mamoru fucking Hosada, who guest directed two anime episodes in basically his directorial infancy. So it's all connected. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so Artland did a wonderful job uh, adapting this series because when you have a series like Mushishi to where the 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 way that it's supposed to be I'm anim- sorry I'm interrupting you right now but Kumo left my square and he go find new square to sit on Yeah he's going he's he's hunting right now he's he, foraging he's hunt for square he's fo- Anyway please continue So um Artland knew that with this series that they would have they would have a very hard time trying to get to, to trying to garner the mood of Mushishi because the way that that uh, Orushibara writes is so enrapturing and and sucks you in so deeply that to be able to replicate this feeling in animation and tone and directorial style was going to be a feat. Um, so- <laughs> I was being a fucking normal animal and Kuma was being a little freak. Okay. Anyway. Uh, so your uh, evil child. My evil my your evil, evil son. Evil boy. My evil son. Um with Artland. Yes, please tell me about Artland uh wanting to to do this. this so, so with Artland, they knew that they had a task ahead of them. Um so they assembled a very good team that was very uh good at doing things like the background work which is so freaking important because the art in Mushishi is gorgeous and they knew that they would need to do something equally as gorgeous for 
the absolutely beautiful uh, watercolor backgrounds that they apply in uh, Mushishi. You know what's really funny, uh, not to completely interrupt you, Mm -hmm. but when I was reading an interview, or not an interview, a review um, of Mushishi, they said that the area where it lacked the most was the art department in the anime. I And I was very surprised to read that. I am I'm really fl- like that really like uh, not They upset were they me. said that they were um it's surprising because I feel like in comparison to the manga, I guess it could be a genuine criticism, but that's just if you're being extremely nitpicky. Like it's just kind of not taking into account that the people that make this are humans. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very pretty, and even I even think it's Ur- beautiful. Even Urushi yes. Baro's art is rough. It's not it's not like prim and perfect. There's a roughness to it, and and an unpolishedness to it that that adds to it. Even the animation, I mean, it's not perfect animation every once in a. It's not perfect animation, even though they do have some beautiful shots every once in a while. But it gets the job done very well, and the things that it, yeah. it absolutely excels in are tone, sound design, music, and direction. The music is the fantastic. music is beautiful, and that's one thing that where animation is always going to trump over manga is that you can hear it. And a lot of what Mushishi deals with is visual and audio stimulation. There's Mushishi talks about color a lot, about movement a lot. Well, I mean, that's like, you know, an aspect of nature. And, you know, there are uh, aspects of media that are very dependent on the way that we understand the Mushi, you know, like Mushi that make people blind or Mushi that um, make people lose their hearing. So the, you know, audio design is going to have to reflect those changes exactly it's not up to your it's not up to your imagination yeah so um you know sometimes you they even would have to get creative so i felt like um you know it it, you're right that it would have done best in a studio that really uh understood the artfulness of their source material there is an old adage to where the best sound design is where you don't even notice it um, but really, I think that that's only partially true because when I when there is really really good sound design, you are like, whoa, that was visceral, or whoa, that was beautiful, or that's such an interesting application. You definitely do notice that, and Mushishi is one of those series. Like for instance, even how they score the movement of the Mushi to where they use a theremin of all instruments, uh, which is a old style glass harmonic instrument that it sounds ethereal that was a beautiful choice to do and there are not too many people that can play the theremin on this earth <laughs> literally <laughs> literally yeah. yeah so so something like that is it's such a great choice and not even with scoring the mushi and scoring the sound design like we talked about i feel about. like that there's like computer sounds that mimic that instrument mm-hmm. um that we hear a lot yes but like they got the real deal yes yeah that's amazing um and with the real deal as well the uh person who worked with the uh music the most was toshio matsuda uh my who, boy who did uh, a great job doing the general ost uh to where tanya would literally exclaim mid-episode oh my god this music is excellent and the way that he made the Naruto soundtrack. <laughs> that's, that's why I loved it. But uh, he employs a lot of traditional uh, uh, musicians and uh, uh, songstresses and also 
uh, very old instruments like the shamisen and the shakuhachi. Um, also, a lot of sonorous like throat singing and chanting and just... It's so beautiful. It's really it's really hauntingly beautiful. Yeah. I mean, I, I always the, think of the... I'm always going to think of the Mushi Banquet from the first episode. Exactly. Um, when, you know, the drums are going along with the pace that they're walking at and they're out in the forest and it's swelling and there's that intensity... It was just so beautiful. It's such a, it's such an all around, it's the most experience, it's the most experience experience yeah. that you can have. It's, it's really, it's really beautiful. And, and I think that's so great because like with this series, an anime adaption can live or die on the small choices that you make it with it. And all these choices were made excellently. Yeah. Uh, I think that. It, the music was just on its own. The music, excellent choice. <laughs> um, Greatest music in the world. <laughs> They're not going to understand our memes. No, no. Yeah. So. Welcome to the Shonen Protagonist, the greatest podcast in the world. Anyway. So going from that, um, I also. Oh, you just ignored I'm me. Gonna, I'm going to completely <laughs> sandbag. I'm going to sandbag all your jokes. You're being sandbagged. You're being sandbagged. Um, going along with another of my interests besides animation, um, like any person with many hyper-focuses over the years, I have a very deeply vested interest in mushrooms. And uh, Mushi act a lot like mushrooms, so color me uh, completely go monkey crazy over this series. Um, there is a, a study of uh, uh, mushrooms which is called mycology. And if you uh, are interested in mushrooms at all, it's really great to learn about mycologists and mushroom hunting and how mushrooms behave and act in, in uh, life and how basically mushrooms are responsible for us living on this planet right now. There Is, are many... uh, has Urushibara uh, cited mushrooms as being an inspiration? Or is it it's just not a, a direct? It's not a direct sighting, but considering that... But they're very similar. They are, That's no, very cool. No, not even that, but like how the mushi act or how mushrooms act all yeah, the so, time. So it's similar. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, ju and just their visual design as well. That's true. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Very cool. It's very, it's very, very neat. Um, yeah. And that go that really goes into the more scientific aspect again. Uh, Tanya mentioned the shadow biosphere. Oh, yes. Well, we're going to be talking about that later. Yeah. Um, but anyway... Um, anything else to say about the anime, really? Um, not really. Just that if you were going to pick one of the two things to experience, um, usually I have, I can tell you, oh, watch the anime or, oh, read the manga. With Mushishi, I think that both have something to offer that the other can't, like, offer to you. So if you had to pick one, I'd say the anime, just because you have that excellent sound design and a lot of, like, things that would normally have to rely on your imagination and considering how the real physical volumes are so difficult to find but while you can just watch Mushishi and it's just on Netflix and it's, it's on um, it's actually on Hulu of uh, all places yeah Hulu and Netflix has season 2 and the and the OVA which is weird yeah I guess it must be like some kind of like Funimation squabble um, going on there it, it's gotta be some distribution thing yeah but, but anyway, at, least, at least it's accessible it's accessible um, and I do agree. And also the OP is in English. 
Which is very sweet. Yeah, the um, OP is the Sore Feet song by Ali Care. And also the cute. second OP is also in English, although I can't remember the artist that did it. But it's a separate artist. Um, the, both are really excellent. And honestly, the uh, OP makes me feel like it's Hobbit music. It sounds like Hobbit music to me. It's Hobbit music. It sounds like Hobbit <laughs> uh, Yeah. Um, but anyway, the, the anime is great. I agree with Alexa there. Um, but if you can find the manga, first of all, uh, you've you've made a rare score, so get it. Um, and if you can't find it, the anime is always there. And you can know that the music kicks ass. The way I also <laughs> really, really want the real action heroes uh, Ginkgo that is also like $500 and a million years old. So Cries. I'm, like, I'm so mad. Yeah, it's uh, apparently it's just really hard to find shit for Mushishi. But uh, anyway... So, going on from the anime now, um, it was also adapted into a live-action movie Mm -hmm. by Katsuhiro Otomo, that's his name, uh, who is known for directing a little movie that you may have heard of called Akira. What's that one? Uh, Well, I'll I'll tell you, Alexa, (laughs) it just might have been one of the most influential and iconic uh, anime films of all time. Never heard of it. Never heard of it, I know. It's it's pretty it's pretty obscure. It's I don't pretty know obscure. You, I don't yeah, know if you know, know about if it. You heard about it? It's not foundational or anything. It's very Mm-mm. niche, Mm-mm. fringe, you know. So anyway, God, that's like a dad joke there. I'm gonna go. <laughs> so anyway, um, that hurt it was, me to do. It, me too. <laughs> it uh, was directed by Otomo, and uh, they debuted the movie after a 16 year break in this man's career. So it like. I don't know. On the outside, it sounds kind of like he was, like, particularly inspired by Mushishi and wanted to really work on this project and kind of was like, yeah, this is going to be the thing that, like, brings me back into the game. But who knows? Maybe it just was something that just came along in the right place at the right time and he was like, yeah, I'll hop back in. I don't know. But it's interesting to uh, speculate on that. And it premiered at the 2006 Venice International Film Festival, so not bad for a little anime film. Um, well, it's a live-action anime film, but still. It even screened uh, in the United States at the 2007 Sundance Film Festival twice and was sold out both times. And basically it did pretty damn well for a live-action adaptation, or at least it was uh, shown... Uh, in in circles that it wouldn't get into yeah um, normally yeah that, that, very a, rare. that, that a live action anime movie would not get into normally. yeah no way they, they ain't going at sundance especially during that time period a lot so yeah um i mean it's not uncommon in japanese film festivals but, oh no for sure um yeah like the full metal alchemist premiered uh live action premiered at the tokyo film festival mm-hmm, but like mm-hmm. that's pretty normal yeah um but anyway um, it, it did pretty well. Um, it even was made into a video game for the Nintendo DS, which was released in 2008 and entitled Mushishi Amafuru Sato, which means sweet rain. As much as we wanted to do a deep dive on this one, we couldn't do so for time. And I imagine that uh, finding content of this would be very difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you do have any content of this video game, uh, please send it our way. We would love to see it. I, I have no idea who would be listening to this. Rip the OST the for me, actually. <laughs> oh, man. I hadn't even thought about the OST. It's got to be pretty good. Oh, it's got to be. Um, 
But yeah, that um, would be great if you could send that our way. And if that wasn't enough, it also has, as you guessed, a stage play adaptation. Guys. Yeah, the Japanese fucking love those stage plays, baby. As long as they don't pull an ear like that, I don't care. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, but before we go in down that rabbit hole, it had a very limited and exclusive run over one week in Tokyo. And it was directed uh, again by Nagahama, um, who was the director of the, the anime. anime series. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. And the anime's voice actors reprised their characters. Uh, so they actually were, um, which is not completely unheard of, but rarely. Rare. It was like um, more like a table read than anything. Yeah, it was more like... I'm gonna uh, sound like a big old gay person here, but it was like the vagina monologues. <laughs> Unprovoked? Unprovoked. You remember those? I do, but oh my vagina god. Monologues? Oh my god, no. Okay, can you, I mean, can you think of another uh, pop culture thing that people would immediately be able to compare this no, to? No, but like, oh my god. It's a bunch of people sitting around in chairs reading stuff. Anyway, um, the Vagina Monologues, aka Mushishi Live Action. I, stage play. Uh, anyway, I'm, I'm being so, I'm being so, I, I feel like I'm being so mean to both. But anyway. Um, apparently it was a pretty fancy production and it utilized augmented reality and a 270 degree field of view, which is not too shabby. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So I wish um, I could have seen it. Basically a technologically advanced vagina monologue. I, if the vagina monologues (laughs) used augmented reality, I think it would have. You go in the vagina. You can't see her, but she's flailing in agony. Yeah, yeah, I know. That was horrible. That was awful. I'm going to podcast jail for that one. Anyway, um, yeah, that's Mushishi uh, on that incredibly tasteful note. So if you're listening to this and wondering how the hell did I miss out on this anime, join the club. Unfortunately... If, uh, as we were talking about, if you live in North America like we do, you will be hard-pressed to find copies of this manga without paying an arm and a leg. And uh, the anime is pretty accessible, so please watch the dub and sub uh, on Funimation and Hulu, respectively. The dub's pretty good, too. I hadn't actually seen the dub yes. before, so that, that was pretty nice for me. Yes. Because I'm a sub-purist. Really? Most of the time, yeah. Oh, my God. Get over yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I, I learned a passable amount of Japanese so I don't have to read subtitles so I can be ADHD and do other things while listening to my That's why anime. the dub is there. No. That's literally why it's there. No. Okay. Well, Learn other language first. <laughs> that that would clearly take less time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I personally, um, if we're going to get into the sub versus dub argument, which we're not going to because we're already... We are. We'll be at each other's throats in about four seconds. No. No, you want us to be at each I other's throats. I want to do an because argument. Because you want to fight. Yeah. <laughs> you want to be New Jersey. I want to do an argument. And anyway, I think that both have their pros and cons, and I respect the art of dubbing 
and people are gonna shit on it all they want. I like but... no, I I respect the art and I and I respect dubbers and I think that they're fantastic a- actors. But I literally am just like, no. <laughs> I don't know. Like I honestly, it depends on what mood I'm in. I'm happy that both are there. Yeah. Um, if I'm really watching it, watching it, I do like to watch the sub. But I also, you know, I work from home and sometimes I want to be able to watch it and know what the hell is going on. Yeah, while doing other stuff. Yeah, Yeah, so it makes it accessible. And also it makes it accessible for people that, uh, you know, may not be able to... Read subtitles. Who may not be able to read subtitles that have auditory processing issues or are bad with... Uh, reading fast enough, you know, like all kinds of oh, things. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, um, and I love that there's that accessibility. Also, it provides uh, people with a lot of money. Um, it's very lucrative for people in voice acting. There's a lot of good things um, about dubbing. So I don't really understand the argument for that, the, that either one is superior. Um well, Honestly. it's like it's like King of the Hill. People are going to argue on that hill whether the dub or the sub for that is good too. So, <laughs> why not both? I think that anything King of the Hill is great, um, but I I thought it was great before I moved to Texas. Wow. I will say that. Okay, <laughs> I know. So, um, I think that just about is that's Mushishi. Um, so we can wow, get into at an hour. We can get into we've explained how it be. So why do it be? Why it be? Yes. 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 So we've gone over all of that. So what does it all mean? Wow. Who knows? So there are so many incredible things to be said about Mishishi. And we honestly can't sing enough praises for the story, for its creator at the end of the day. We can all talk about the story's philosophy, its science, its writing, its fantastic design, its numerous literary undertones, or simply each chapter's incredible power that packs a punch every single time. There's literally not a single episode that I can think of that I thought wasn't good. Like some were better than others, but even the worst of the bunch will have you in the fetal position by the end. Mm -hmm. You will be crying for your mother. Funnily enough, you can really glean a lot uh, about an individual's outlook on life depending on the way that they describe Mishishi or like describe it to others. You see people use words like supernatural, metaphysical, ghost story. I mean, like those three words alone really Mm. uh, describe, can tell a lot about how somebody views the world naturalist calming scientific fantasy and the great thing is all of those can technically apply since well mushi can really basically be anything uh after all and personally and i mean personally here because i am not going to knock anyone's beliefs as uh long as they don't encourage you to hurt other people or make you a fucking bigot um, I believe that the truth lies in that balance in between. And I like to believe that science and spirit or God, if you want to call it that, are intimate with each other. And that science is this language of the universe, like, you know, that's the universe speaking to us. 
the if the spirit is at the center of that then well maybe science is the language of the spirit and aside from you know the personal belief of all of that it turns out that i might not be the only person who believes that the answers to something greater lies in things that uh, humans cannot see or even comprehend and in fact scientists have been postulating this for years which brings us to the shadow biosphere yeah yeah alexa's like wanting to talk about shadow biosphere so bad i want to talk about the shadow biosphere so bad so while mishishi possess many naturalist themes and tones throughout the story there are a lot of aspects based in science, both proven and theoretical. It turns out that the concept of Mushi has already been questioned by scientists. Is it possible that creatures that humans cannot see exist? Rods. 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 Ugh. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm still fucked up thinking about that Monster Hunters episode where they slow it down and it's the shape of a bug. Thank you. I know. I'm fucked thank up. Thank you, thank you, thank you, yeah. thank you. Anyway, you... <laughs> I can't believe I'm telling people to watch Monster Hunters, but it's a good episode because you're like, what the fuck is that? It's a mother, it's a fucking rod. And then you can be like, is this a JoJo reference? So I guess it is technically <laughs> Monster Hunters anime episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But anyway, um, it turns out that this has already been questioned. Like, you know, could a Mushi exist or a Mushi like species, creature, race, uh, exist underneath our noses um basically the concept of creatures that exist unseen among earth has been long considered by astrobiologists colloquially referred to colloquially goddamn referred to in their field as a shadow biosphere i was completely new to this concept and i found it fascinating even a little terrifying as a hypothesis alexa already knew about it fucking of course it's cool it's cool Yes. Uh, Essentially, we have questioned the possibility of a hypothetical microbiosphere uh, on microbial biosphere, rather, on Earth that would use entirely biochemical and or molecular processes from that of currently known life. And in fact, you know, this is kind of talked about in Mushishi a little bit um, when, you know, because Mushi can be ghosts. Yeah, Mushi's, yeah, Mushi are attached to uh, the realms of death and dream and sleep and the supernatural. Yeah, and there's a lot of episodes where... Human like, psyche. Yeah, where, um, you know, basically the shadow biosphere could also technically uh, provide an explanation for supernatural phenomena, which is fascinating. Um, you know, like... Again, this idea that science uh, and the supernatural kind of go hand in hand with each other, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, are there any things that you want to uh, talk about with the shadow biosphere? Well, the shadow biosphere is <laughs> basically a hypothesis uh, where it's basically dark matter, but for biological life. Um, What's dark matter, the con- Alexa? The concept of dark matter is basically that the universe is made up of matter that we can only uh, belie of its absence in the world rather than actual physical uh, evidence. So it's basically like something that we can prove that there is a space for, but not be able to see the thing directly. 
Very cool. And most of the universe is made up of dark matter rather than actual matter. Which is kind of fucked up. Which is very fucked up. Yeah. So a shadow biosphere is kind of the same thing, and but instead of uh, of general matter, it's specifically for biological organisms to where they're like, well, there's so many gaps in what we understand uh, in like the biosphere of Earth that we know that there are gaps to where there could be creatures to fill those gaps, but we haven't found those creatures yet. So that's what they mean by a shadow biosphere. And yeah. this also can apply to creatures that might not be discovered or creatures that might not be able to be seen by natural instruments, like for instance, rods, but also things that we just can't get to, like things that live in volcanoes or things that live at the bottom of the ocean that we haven't seen yet. Fucked up. Exactly. To think about. Um, anyway, that's very... So, yeah, that's the shadow biosphere. Um, and basically, um, you know, Mushishi is this world in which... The shadow it, biosphere it would, it, it touches would be real. more. Yeah. yeah, it would be uh, real and interact with us. Because, you know, if you can't see Mushi, but then you see the ghost of your grandmother... You're like, oh, that's my grandmother's ghost. You're not like, that's a Mushi. No. You know, there's no scientific or, or natural explanation for it. So it's it's very interesting to see how the theory of a shadow biosphere connects to um, the story, but also just kind of like human legends and our fascination with these kinds of things exactly. that we've always had like that like, we've always questioned like grandmothers will know oh don't do this because this might happen and they might not know the reason why that is but they pass the stories down it's to been their children down yeah it's very fascinating um so are you know we have to ask ourselves are there creatures like mushi out there existing among among us that humans cannot perceive uh Turns out that there are multiple papers on the subject, of course. Um, one that I ended up finding and reading came from Dr. Paul Davies of Arizona State University. And uh, this man believes it is indeed possible. He and a few others uh, published a paper in 2009 entitled Signatures of a Shadow Biosphere, which proposes the theoretical avenues through which we could identify this supposed biosphere. Uh, if you're interested in learning more, there is actually a video made by Fraser Kane on the points discussed in this paper. So I'm going to link both the paper and the video uh, for those interested in watching or reading. Um, it's actually a very digestible paper. It's not full of like, you know, a bunch of Alexa uh, terminology. Oh, it's not filled with a bunch of big Alexa words. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's very readable. It's very fascinating. And it basically just goes over, you know, like, here's the tenants that need to be in place in order for us to uh, dis just discover uh, the possibility of a shadow biosphere. Um, but, you know, I think that it is the kind of thing that you really have to believe it's there in order to look for it because otherwise you would have no idea to look for it you know mm -hmm, what i mean mm -hmm. so it's it's very interesting um so yeah i'm gonna link that paper in the notes so he writes uh in this paper dr davies writes this paper is based on the idea that the best strategy for discovering the existence of weird terrestrial life and he uses that term a lot weird terrestrial life assuming for the sake of argument that it exists is to search for biological anomalies. Anomalies are the driving force behind scientific revolutions. They stand out against the backdrop of accepted scientific belief 
driving new conceptual schemes, and paving the way for yet more discoveries. It is hard to imagine a discovery of greater significance than a shadow biosphere of weird life on Earth. And that's true, because if it is true, um, fucked up if true. We would, we, would have an entire, we would have an entire part of Earth that we had no earthly idea about despite living here this entire time, and I think that's really neat. I mean, it would be very neat, but also um, I think that it would be one of, like, can you think of anything that would be uh, more fundamentally shaking than, like, an explanation for God and religion that was biologically based? Oh, my God. Yeah, like, I think that, you know, things, just things like that, right, um, would really fuck up the human race yeah it yeah. would um it would it would quite disturb us uh, i think um so i really appreciate scientific takes like this um because i think it conveys a certain love and fascination for the universe that comes from this belief that we really don't know everything yet there's still so much to be discovered uh and you know i think that a lot of scientists would hem and haw at this paper but there's a vulnerability that comes with asking questions that people perceive as ridiculous. Um, and, you know, not all of those uh, ridiculous questions, of course, are going to be, you know, lead to scientific discoveries, but some of them will. So I think it's important that these papers exist out there. And, you know, obviously it's important to filter through the bullshit. Mm -hmm. But this is something that has been speculated on by many, many, many scientists over a very long period of time. Mm -hmm. Of course, like, it, it's pretty natural to uh, ask, you know, what is out there that we can't see, that mm -hmm. we can't perceive? Things, even things like, um, you know, like the color spectrum that, you know, like, we can't even see all of it. We can't and even we see, know that. We can't see pink for real. We can't see pink for real. Fucked up. Yeah. Again, there's just so many uh, avenues through which a shadow biosphere could exist because our perception of reality is so limited as humans, which is also very fucked up. So anyway, the idea that a shadow biosphere could exist, like, in the world of Mishishi may seem ridiculous, but I really appreciate that some scientists are vulnerable enough to keep asking those kinds of questions. And ironically, while looking at Dr. Davies' work, I also found out that he was working on a related project referred to as the Maximum Entropy Production Principle, which leads me into my actual analysis of Mishishi and the beautiful, terrifying loss of entropy in nature. at it from uh, my uh, perspective of kind of that literary analysis of Mushishi as a uh, as a literary work uh, that has you know like the aspects of a story I think it's very easy to see the overarching theme of connectivity and universal oneness that Mushishi has and you know me, Full Metal Alchemist fan, I love that shit. Um, I love that people have described the show as calming because I feel like your view of the world has to be just 
rock solid in order to be calmed by a story like Mushishi because I feel like it's there's in, a lot of deeply upsetting things yeah, that happen in I Mushishi think, I feel like its intent is to shake you up but the only way you could feel calmed by it is if you kind of let that rock you to sleep if that makes sense where mm-hmm. you just really accept it it's like the ocean yeah um, yeah, it, it makes me feel the same way I imagine that being in the open ocean feels like. So, like, a lot of people describe this as their nightmare. Like, I knew this one. Ooh, Kumert is back. I um, remember talking to a coworker of mine once where she wanted to be a marine biologist, as one does. And she was uh, diving on a school trip off Mm -hmm. of a boat and you know when you are all made up in your scuba gear um, you fall backwards off of the off the boat right Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. uh, she went off on the wrong side of the boat and um, she was fine it's not like a physical danger or anything but the intent was when she fell off the back of the boat that she would be facing the coral reef, but she ended up falling and facing the open ocean. Oh my god! And so she said it was the eeriest feeling of the in the world to her, and she got back into the boat and never went in the ocean again. God Almighty! Yeah, that story always stuck with me uh, because she, you know, it was just such a hard, like I can't imagine because I guess it was just like. Why would the absence of anything scare somebody so badly? You know what I mean? It was just it was just open water. But me and my apartment absolutely filled the brim, the brim with trinkets and objects. I don't know how the absence would scare me. I don't Tanya. know. Yeah. So I guess that <laughs> uh, it was really like uh, a very scary experience for her for her to literally just be like, actually, I don't want to be a marine biologist. I never want to get in the ocean again. I'm terrified of the ocean now. I, I was just like, wow, that's pretty crazy. But that's kind of like how Mushishi, I feel like, is designed to make you feel. Yeah. Um, it's designed to kind of put you out in that open ocean and face it. So if you... Um, are just kind of like if you imagine yourself in this kind of existential that's that's what it is right like just kind of like this existential nightmare mm-hmm. of nothing above or below you except blue water and you know as far as the eye can see blue water and maybe something else in there maybe which, which is you which don't is, know which is the worst part i mean yeah but you know like if you like but that's the thing right like if you let yourself go and just be a part of it, then it's just going to exist with you. Mm-hmm. You know, like, it's only if you think of it in terms of, like, oh, my God, like, it's going to hurt me or I don't know what it is, therefore I'm scared of it. Mm-hmm. There's this mm-hmm. level of peace that you have to make with the situation in order to be calmed in that. So, basically, people who feel calm by Mushishi are people that you could drop in the open ocean and they would be fine. So, you have to be a badass. <laughs> basically mm-hmm. you have to be an existential badass but it can be very peaceful and spiritual if you decide to let those fears go right if you mm-hmm. if you push past that barrier of like that evolutionary fear that yeah. exists within you yeah that that of like not only that but like an other level of consciousness right where we like oh like from an evolutionary standpoint yes i'm scared because i'm in a weird environment 
that I'm not in charge of and I can't control. But then there's that other level of it, like, wow, it's really quiet and I can hear all of my thoughts and I don't really know what's going on and I don't, like, I'm scared. So there's, like, that whole other mm-hmm. added level of, like, what the fuck to it. Mm-hmm. So at the same time, um, you noted, hey. it can be also abruptly violent and haunting and horrifying like a nature documentary. Um, so please explain uh, what that meant, because I feel like you should be the one to explain I, it. I, when we were talking, we were talking after the end of one of the episodes, and I was trying to put into metaphor and simile, as I like to do, um, what Mushishi made me feel like. And basically the biggest thing that I was able to reference was it made me feel like I was watching a nature documentary, not because of all the trees in the green, but more like the nature documentary that you watch where a killer whale is mercilessly murdering a baby seal. Um, and what I mean by this is when you're watching the nature documentary, you understand that the killer whale needs to eat, um, but also the baby seal get murdered. And you are feeling very compl- complicated emotions because you understand that this is a natural process and it's something that just happens and it's not because the killer whale is overtly malicious and you understand that there can't be all these baby seals in the world because then there will be too many seals and then the ecology of that general biosphere will break down. Uh, but also you're like, uh, <laughs> when you're watching yeah, it. Um, that I feel like that's just such a good way to describe it because like... Ultimately, what you described is one benefiting from the, like... You don't know what to root for, basically. Yeah, you don't know who to root for because, you know, like, if the killer whale gets the baby seal, that's great for the killer whale because it can feed its babies. Um, So, like, that's great. But if the baby seal gets away, then the killer whale suffers. So one suffers regardless of the outcome and that's the painful reality of nature the most painful reality of nature is the uh is how imp- the harshness of it is how impartially brutal existence is and that's what a nature documentary really captures um so for me it felt like being dropped in the open ocean and having to be like this is fine and for alexa it felt like Watching a baby seal get eaten. It, by it a felt killer like whale. David Attenborough was grabbing me by the throat. Oh my god! <laughs> I want David Attenborough to narrate Mushishi so bad, ah! so bad. King, please. Oh my god! I'd scream and cry and throw the, up. The, the, that's the only real senpai. When ah! I say senpai, notice me. I mean David Attenborough. Oh my god! But not sexually respectfully. He did like a little like, freak, he, he like, a little, like, like ten minute like like Snoop Dogg narrates like the yeah. I, I, I need it. I'm going to start a Kickstarter now. He'd David Attenborough. Like, he would literally be like, fucked up if, if true. Yeah. <laughs> fucked up if true. I can't, ah! I can't even do a good no, impression. You, nobody, nobody can talk the way he do. No, Morgan Freeman. But I personally, David Attenborough is my favorite Attenborough narrator. Attenborough is better. If I could have him narrate my life, I would just be, please just punch. I'm tired. And he'd be like, this bitch is laying on the couch again. No, no he would be nice to me. <laughs> He would be nice to me. <laughs> anyway, so that's kind of how Ginkgo sees uh, the Mushi, in my opinion, is it's like, well, like, we're this killer whale. There are these baby seals. We both got to eat. Um, 
and you know one when one benefits the other one suffers and uh, that's definitely the most impartial way to view the, the series on a surface level I would think mm-hmm. um, is that Ginkgo has this impartiality this naturalistic view of things so distilled into its simplest form one could argue that Mishishi is simply about the oh my god dude what are you doing <laughs> there's a bug oh my god okay there's... go back to cookie I put the cookie away. You're, you, and now you're trying to karate kid flies. <laughs> anyway. I thought it was a mosquito. Oh, well, you know, we would have heard it. Over there. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, fuck that bug. <laughs> as I say it while we're recording. Yeah, as, as we say Mushishi. Yes. The bugs hurt fuck you that, when they're fuck mad. Fuck that Mushi. I'm going to die now. Um, maybe that's why I'm having such bad luck. Um, so anyway, distilled into its simplest form, one could argue Mishishi is just simply about like this chaos of the universe, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Using our seventh grade English class literary devices, we can see that the Mushi clearly exist as a symbol of chaos. Or if we want to get fancier, the inescapable entropy that exists in the closed system that is our universe. While this assessment is on its own, uh, no doubt, a reductive view of the Mushi, and I do think that that is, um, because they are so much more than that, and they can exist and be so much more than that. Um, I love that Kumo came back. Kumo came back, he's sleeping with you. He came back. Um, But anyway, you could write so much more about the Mushi uh, than that they are simply a symbol of chaos. Um, but I think that also using them as a symbol for chaos can lead down so many different avenues, um, of emphasis. Like you can apply this particular symbol of chaos to philosophy, to science, to nature, and of course to the human condition. Similar to Ginkgo's example of the human hand. Uh, veins leading back to the heart um, because in the first episode uh, Ginkgo holds up his hand and says you know if you look at your hand uh, and think of the each of the fingers as branches of human life you know and humans are at the top you know your middle finger and then there's animals there's bacteria there's fungi um, and then if you keep going down your vein uh, of like down your arm that if you get closest to the heart, there's the mushi. Um, so kind of this, uh, similar to this example of the human hands, veins leading back to the heart, the mushi symbolizing entropy can exist where they themselves do in this metaphor and be at the very heart of this entire branch of all these different applications. So thinking about entropy on its own, Mushi aside, evokes so many existential questions. Going back to our seventh grade fundamentals, oh, now he decides he wants to sit on my notes. You want to sit right on the paper. Yes. So (laughs) going back to our seventh grade fundamentals, we remember the all... (laughs) Kumo! Kumo's like, I'm helping. He's helping. Wait, I'm going to take a picture of him so people can see. Yes. He's helping. He's literally helping so good. Oh, he's helping. 
Oh! <laughs> yes. So now everybody can see why I'm crying. Uh, trying to keep a straight face. I feel like one of those news anchor people you where the like, animal yeah, comes yeah, in and yeah. you're just like... <laughs> and they're like trying to do the weather and like the cat's like climbing their leg and yes. they're like just like... And then uh, the weather today. Yeah, yeah. That's exact. Going back to our seventh grade. <laughs> Um, anyway, going back to our seventh grade, where even is that now? I'm literally petting him while he's on top of my notes. Oh, yeah. yes, yes. Um, so, yes. The, so thinking about entropy itself evokes so many existential questions. Going back to our seventh grade fundamentals, we remember the all-powerful second law of thermodynamics. In a closed system, entropy increases. Uh, I feel like if this were puppet history, it would be like, say it with me, in a closed system, entropy increases. It doesn't That take... puppet's going to come kill us for taking his bits. That's all uh, I got to say. Please don't kill me. I just want to be a guest and be a history master, please. It doesn't take too long to begin applying that law to things smaller than the universe as a whole, right? So, like, we can oddly enough apply this law of science to any closed system real or perceived so it seems like nothing can escape this fundamental law like not only would it apply to the universe but it also can apply to perceived things like families or schools or governments uh or relationships even just a single human being uh can uh be the closed system in which this chaos increases right mm -hmm. So it seems like nothing can really escape this law in all of its forms. And I'm so sorry, Kumo baby, but I have to take my note. I know, but you can sit on my clipboard. He's like, I will. He's like, yeah, I fucking wow, will. Wow, there's a square. There's a square. You can sit on that square. That's for you. So there is a key word in that statement for me. So, like... You know, which word in the law of thermodynamics makes you feel the most dread? And for me, it's closed. It, like, closed system makes me feel completely powerless. And honestly, I feel like there are few feelings worse in the world for people than powerlessness. People feel a variety of emotions while watching Mushishi, but whether you feel calmed or frightened or saddened or emboldened, it all comes from the same place. The variety of outlooks simply reflects the vast variety of the collective that is the human experience. It doesn't change that it's every individual dealing with the same... What are you doing now? He's trying to eat my zipper. It doesn't change <laughs> that it is every individual dealing with the same concept that Mushishi serves us, which is this impartial cruelty and chaos with which the universe performs this dance. It shakes our sense of security to the core, and it reminds us that our security about our place in the world is a false one. Fucked up. Like, again, that feeling of being in the ocean, right? Like, mm -hmm. that sense of security is false. Who knows what's there with you? Like exactly, you said, exactly. who knows what could come up and rock my shit at any second? And that's where it gets, you get into a big tenet of humanity, which is me know no thing, different, scary, me yeah. kill it. <laughs> me kill it. And it kind of goes beyond that evolutionary fear, right? Mm -hmm. uh, into like uh, existential, spiritual, metaphysical. Uh -huh. So 
we're forced to question and face that false security. We're forced to question what, if anything, really separates humans from the rest of nature. The answer is not much. Uh, we're flesh and bone, and we're fragile ones at that. If the ecosystem suffers, we are going to feel it just like the rest of nature does. We are not impervious to anything, so why do we even act like it? You know, maybe like Ginkgo says that the illusion of us having that sense of security, that that chaos isn't going to come for us eventually, is just us trying to survive. And I mean, I feel like, you know, I knew this episode would get existential, but mm-hmm, like that's mm-hmm. just really existential to think that like this sense of security is like, you know, while it is fake, it's kind of like a way that humans have evolved to not have a fucking crisis. To every conceptualize, day. yeah. Yeah. So watching a show like Mushishi makes me ask, wait a minute, are you telling me that like, none of this matters, that I'm powerless. Like, there's this nihilism to it Mm -hmm. um, in that way where you can, like, where you could ultimately say, like, oh, Ginkgo is nihilistic. I don't think that that's true. Um, But there is that kind of, um, like, basically there is the, uh, it leads you to ask, you know, does none of this matter? Is my life powerless? Uh, you know, like, are me and my loved ones and my community uh, liable to be impartially snuffed out overnight by a natural disaster or a hungry animal or even murderous fellow humans? And God forbid any of those things ever happen to you or me um, or Kumo. <laughs> Kumo is so susceptible to all those things happening to him at once. Yes, because he's silly. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So anyway, so what do I have to live for if it's all pointless? Kumo. No. <laughs> so, okay. Um, you may be asking, damn, Tanya, how is this even inspiring? Look, I know it sounds like it's very hopeless. We all have to come to terms with this after, like, soon. I, yeah, I can motivate you all you want, but... It is true that we are all going to die someday. Wow. Thank you so much, Tanya. I, I know. I know. But I like, I, I'm just saying I'm going somewhere with this. Um, and that fact doesn't change no matter how much we ignore it. And that's what Mushishi is also trying to get people to understand. So I'm, I'm trying to comfort you ultimately, um, even though I'm being like, look at it. <laughs> Look directly at the sun. Look, look directly into the sun, and it won't hurt after a while. Oh, my God. Because you'll be dead. I, um, wow. I, I'm telling you, man. So, You know who doesn't have a concept of death? Kumo. <laughs> good for him. He's so good. He's so good. He's so good. So, yeah, you're, you guys might be saying, like, wow, damn, I thought this was a motivational podcast. Well, hear me out. This one is a thinker, and we went to some dark places today, but I'm going to tell you why it matters. Mm-hmm. It matters a lot, actually. Actually, your life matters. Would you say that your life is your own? That is the wrong fucking episode. (laughs) I'm going to beat the shit out of you. Okay. Okay. It matters a lot, actually. Um, So the question that we ask, I feel like the default question that we ask is why 
does life even matter? The question is actually, why doesn't life matter, right? Because if nothing matters, then why wouldn't you ask that question? Well, why doesn't it? And I think that we can gain a lot of motivation by actually viewing our lives with that same impartiality because at the end of the day, the stakes that we place upon ourselves aren't that high. I think that it's really important to turn those really hard questions of does this even matter into something empowering because there's nothing stopping you from doing that. There's nothing in the universe that is going to take those questions and turn them around on you because you know, if that's what you need to survive, then that is what you need to survive and surviving matters. And ultimately what makes life such a gift is the fact that it is such a miracle. It's so fragile. It's managed to persist in such a system as this, this entropy wreaking havoc every day. And that's a fantastic, amazing, beautiful, incredible thing. And it's such a gift to be a part of something like that. Like, if you think, why does any of this matter? Just the fact that it exists is so beautiful. You can't help but at least appreciate it and be grateful that you're a part of it, I think. And, you know, like being out in the open ocean, if you get away from the fact that like, wow, scary, something could wreck my shit at any moment, like, it's also very beautiful mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it's also so such a rare sight to see you know not every human is ever going to see the open ocean like that no um, there are many there are many humans that are never going to swim in the ocean or be their in the entire ocean. lives yep exactly and that's crazy you know that's again just what a miracle and on a smaller level of you know if we were impervious to chaos, how meaningful would our existence really be? How meaningful would our experiences truly be? Um, things like, you know, that we say, oh, do they even really matter? And it's like, well, if there wasn't that false sense of security, then, you know, if it couldn't be taken away fr from us, then it would lose its value. It's the fact that we do live in this system of entropy and this harsh mistress mother nature that makes life so precious. And if you take it to kind of a smaller level, um, you know, how fulfilling would it be to achieve our goals if we had all the time in the world to achieve them? If we lived forever, then... I could just keep procrastinating on my comic all I wanted. <laughs> and that's a very small example, but I'm just saying you can kind of apply that basic principle to anything because of the finite uh, nature of human existence. There is that preciousness to it. And it's true that, you know, if people lived forever and if we were impervious to all danger, and if chaos didn't come for each and every one of us eventually, the life just wouldn't have the same meaning. It wouldn't be 
as beautiful and finite. It wouldn't be such a tremendous gift to be a part of this strange flow of the universe that is we have even barely been able to begin to observe. So yeah, it's it's existential, guys. Um, I'm getting really deep. Uh, vibe check. How are we doing? <laughs> How are we doing? How on, on, on what level? On what level of of accepting all things uh, are you at right now, my guy? IDK about five or six right now, my dude. Oh, you are like a little baby. Watch this. <laughs> that was such a huge monologue to make a joke. Yep. Yes. So anyway, that's my race on the draw. I don't know about you. you. Yes. Um, (laughs) Make a really huge monologue to make a joke. That's yeah. Make a meme. I mean, that's basically what we're all doing nowadays. Yeah. Anyway, so as this is a great traumatic event. Time to make a meme about it. (laughs) Literally. Yes. When people make memes about therapy, you're literally just you're you're literally just turning away from Mushi. Me showing my therapist the memes that I made about my therapy. Did I do good? Did I win therapy? <laughs> I hate you. Anyway, as always, as always, because we do need to wrap this up. Oh, my God. As always, while writing this, I was reminded of a separate piece of media, which I'm partial to quoting from. I like connecting different pieces of media. That's just how I am as a person. And you're just going to have to respect that. Now, there is a little context for this one and why it's meaningful to me and why I picked it. So... About a year and a half ago when quarantine started, I lost my job and a dear friend of mine was working overtime at the hospital, naturally, because the hospital. Since mm-hmm. I needed work, I walked her dog, who I love very much. Grayson, if you're listening to this, I love you. And I really dove into podcasts because I was walking the dog five times a week. And I started listening to a lot of Radio Lab, and I came across an episode in which they interviewed one of their producers lulu miller and in one of the episodes she talked about a book that she wrote called why fish don't exist and it's um a very interesting book it's it's kind of a partial it's a partial biography and partial autobiography um so it's about her journey learning about this person in history but it goes back to uh episodes of her life as well while she is making these discoveries about this person from the past and it's very good um and it's basically her journey in coming to terms with chaos both in the world but also in her own life and i thought well i have some time so i went ahead and i read it and so this quote is from that book and honestly if you love existential dread i cannot recommend it highly enough (laughs) <laughs> but um, also, if you do read it, um, trigger warning for things like uh, suicide and uh, super existential dread. Um, you know, she um, there's yeah a trigger warning eugenics. There's a lot of stuff there. So um, be warned. It's very, very uh, in your face in terms. Uh, it doesn't pull any punches. I'll, I'll put it like that. I have the book. I'm going to read it. So. Yeah, it's it's a good book. Um, and I think that everybody should kind of hear a story like it in their life for sure. So anyway, uh, this is from that book questioning about the chaos in the universe. Does my life really matter? And, uh, ultimately she arrives at the conclusion, uh, the problem with spending one's time pondering the futility of it all 
is that you divert that precious electricity gifted to you by evolution. Oh, I'm getting chills. The Mm -hmm. sacred ions that could make you feel so many wonderful sensations and think so many wonderful ideas, and you flush it all down the drain of existential inquiry, causing you to literally die while the body is still alive. And Mushishi ties back to this in a way that is so beautiful to me. Because while Mushishi, or just while the Mushi, rather, exemplify this unforgiving chaos and the terrifying nature of life, they also exemplify that beauty and that fragility. And when we focus completely on things like self-improvement and goals and financial stability and the things that you probably listen to motivational podcasts to get better at we sometimes feel a pain like is this worth it Mm -hmm. is it is it going to be worthless when i die and you know maybe it would benefit us to take a step back a little bit from those things sometimes and to consider the miracle that we're even here to focus on those things at all and that's ultimately how it does tie, I feel like, to this podcast. Yeah. Uh, but that, you know, sometimes it's not so much about the fact that, you know, we're going balls to the wall. It's just about the fact that we get to go balls to the wall is amazing when we exist in this tiny little world in this huge, huge universe that we know so little about. What a miracle that is. And we've met so many needs in overcoming the astronomical odds that we would even exist consciously or physically in this space and time at all. And now we have been so scared of that vulnerability that we forget that there's so much beauty within this chaos, this miracle that we are even here at all. And I hope that anyone listening to this is encouraged to appreciate the things around them more instead of feeling drowned out by insignificance or the idea that they're not enough or maybe we can feel like we have this privilege of being a part of this grand scheme of insignificance wow yeah so that's my thoughts and that does it uh for this week's episode actually we finally made it kumo we made it Kumo, we did it thank you for believing in us kumo kumo our producer kumo kumo uh, did you book us on the tonight show like i asked kumo kumo i know that we've been talking about my highs and lows and how my microphone isn't like mic'd up right but you know sometimes i need you to just give me a good old pat on the ass and tell me i did a good job kumo did you reply to oprah kumo but because i'm making fun of him he turned around okay that does it for this week's episode if you have not been reduced to the fetal position by this existentialism please go and rate us on itunes yeah if you liked it or hated it tell us we love to hear we love feedback yes you can follow us on facebook uh at slash the shonen protagonist Twitter at the Shonen Pro because of the goddamn character limit, and Instagram at the Shonen Pro Tech. You can also email us at the Shonen Protagonist at gmail.com. And on our socials, we post extra photos, motivational quotes, and most importantly, shit posts. So check it out. Say hi. We would love to hear from you. Um, and if you want to leave us a review that would mean the world to us, that's how we I would are love you forever. There. So um, yeah, I think that. 
hopefully I have a message for everybody that we have a message for everybody. So um, I would love to hear from y'all. Uh, I'd love to get your reviews. That would be great. Um, and we have tons of conventions coming down the pipeline in the fall. So please make sure to say hi. Um, and the best way you're going to know if we're in your neck of the woods is if you follow us. So we would love to hear from you. Um, we also hand out free podcast swag at every convention. And we would love to chat as the kids say IRO. Do kids still say that? I think so. Yeah, I, th- I think so too. Maybe ironically, but I can't tell anymore. So now for the best part of the show, Atomic guesses that anime. <gasps> oh my god, I forgot! <laughs> You forget every time. Forget every it's, time. it's literally like Groundhog Day. Ah! And, and I'm like, oh my god, you get to guess that anime, and you're like, no. <laughs> so this one came from okay, okay. my amazing roommate, and she saw me writing my notes uh, for this episode and was enthralled with the concept of poorly describing an anime. Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. Yes. So I let her take this one. Oh. She came up with several, and she did not disappoint. Um, I left it blank for some reason, but I'm gonna go into my phone and open it because I think we're going to. Um, let's see. I, she's gonna throw me a curveball. I know she is, but I'm just like really like I'm like the, like the thing is, um, the way that she describes them is a little bit different than a plot line. Uh-huh. But uh, I want to see if you get one. Okay. Uh, she did so many good. Oh, she did a few good okay day gods. Yeah. Okay, okay this okay. one's a classic. Okay, okay. That's your hint. Okay. Just add water. Gender fluid king. Drama one half. Damn. I thought that was going to be way harder. No. Okay. Okay, I'm going to give you a second one. Yeah, give me another one. Okay, yeah. I, I loved that one, though. Yeah, it was really good. That Gender was, fluid king. That was a really good byline for like yes. a DVD cover. Yes, these are all bylines, basically. Yeah. R19 gender flipped ratatouille. R19 gender flipped ratatouille. Yes. Hold on. That's a tough one. Hold on. Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Uh. Okay, for, uh, I'll give you a hint. For adults. And, uh, okay, it's, it's not actually a rat, but it is, it's a rodent. I'm blanking on this one. Okay. It's Oruchuban Ebichu. Oh my god! <laughs> okay, yeah, fuck! Does that, does that yeah, make sense? Yeah, Ebichu, yeah, fuck! Yeah. It, <laughs> now, see how I would have said uh, Ebichu? I would have went Hamtaro, but after dark. Oh, that's good too! Yeah, was, no, that, that's how I would have sold that one. I just loved R19 gender flow. No, yeah, fuck, damn, damn. No, that was a really good one too. Yeah. I just didn't get it. That's, that is okay. Anyway, okay. that's it for this week's episode. Um, we are planning on doing the mob one for y'all. Uh, it's been a crazy month and we appreciate your patience. Um, and even if you weren't patient, I would say, well, tough titties. But anyway, leave a review about that. Leave a review about it. Oh, you want to leave us a review so bad. It makes, it makes us look, look stupid. Oh, it, it does make us look stupid. Anyway, that's it. Until next time, put a little more Ganbaru into your life. Woo! We will see you later. Yay!